quite a few times I've heard, you seem so confident about your career path, but I think I'm just confident in feeling uncomfortable. I understand that that feeling of discomfort will ultimately yield some sort of gain, but you have to grow very, very comfortable with being deeply uncomfortable. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Anika Sherma. Anika describes herself as part scientist, part creative, and a full-fledged nerd. After graduating with a master's in education from Penn State and a master's in public health from George Washington University, Anika became a communications project manager at Wheel Cornell Medicine. There, she built the internal and external communication strategy for the Office of the Research Dean. She led the revamp of the website for the health systems research arm. And of course, she made a ton of content, everything from faculty nomination letters for grants to event posters and newsletters. Okay, that was the work and academic credentials for the aunties and uncles. Here's her fun credentials for the rest of you. In 2015, Annika released her first book, The Rearranged Life. More recently, Annika landed a three-book deal for a rom-com series called The Chai Masala Club. If you've heard our authors in the past, you know that that's a tough thing to do. The first of those books, Love Chai and Other Four-Letter Words, came out in October 2021. Aside from writing, Annika is also the founder and co-host of The Woke Desi, a podcast focused on discussing our multicultural community and the issues that are only whispered about. Things like surrogacy, toxic productivity, and disabilities. Without further ado, Annika Sharma, welcome to Brown People We Know. Also, I'm hearing some rustling in the background. Is that... Sajeev, can you not... Any rustling at all, so we're just gonna pick up the sound. That's really, really impressive, actually, because that's like <laughs> far. Like I could barely hear it, and I'm in person, so that's incredibly. Yeah. You probably have a good mic. You have like an actual mic, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeti. I didn't ever realize that it picked up sound that well, but now I'm very nervous about what my brother has edited out of the thing. But <laughs> oh my god, I had a guess where her husband just came in and started cooking and i'm like my god <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well i kicked Wayne out so he just uh he left so we should be good so if you hear anything else i don't know what it is now i'm less shy about telling people but this was like early on when i first started and i was like oh like yeah uh, hey i kind of hear like, <laughs> could you please uh, <laughs> uh, be quieter <laughs> Yeah, when we were recording with Hethel, Hethel had a four-year-old who, like, wanted to talk. And I've met her, obviously. Like, I've met her kid, and I, like, know her daughter. So I was just like, Hethel, get Alara out of there. Like, I can't do this with her in there. And she was just, like, flat out, just, like, direct. Like, just get her out. She's a four-year-old. I can't talk to her. You know, whatever. How old she is. It's like, I can't do this. (laughs) But I think with other people, I'm like, um... Yeah, I'm still the same. Like, I am still like, I kind of can't hear you. Do you mind? Yeah. (laughs) Oh no, you don't need headphones like this. <laughs> oh, oh my god, that's still so, oh. Robbie's gonna hear this and be like, You told them they didn't need headphones. <laughs> Robbie, I swear, everyone's used headphones except one person. <laughs> they didn't have any, which was unfortunate. <laughs> it's probably why yours sounds so much better than ours, because we have not managed to stand up for ourselves on that particular thing yet. So Well, 
<laughs> Normally I prepare questions, but today I figured I'd just let you interview you on this one. And I'm sure we have a lot of crossover between our audience. So this is probably like a good episode for them too. It's like the greatest crossover episode. <laughs> fully, fully agree. So if you're listening to the Woke Facey or Brown People We Know, hello guys. It's nice to speak with you again and be here with you double this week, I guess. So Annika, I wanted to start actually with names. So the name that I found out on accident about, I forget where I found out about your name, maybe on LinkedIn, was Srebrindu Paspati. But you normally, at least in your work, you go by the name Anika Sharma. And to me, that was really fascinating because normally when we see South Asian adjust their names, it tends to be to accommodate kind of their non-South Asian American peers, right? They're white friends, they're black friends, they're Hispanic friends. And even as generations go by, I've noticed some people, they'll go from Nikhil to Nikhil. I hope he doesn't hear this. I didn't mean to call him out, but <laughs> one of my friends, he's kind of adjusted the pronunciation to something that he prefers. And I've seen that quite commonly more recently. So I find it interesting that you went from Sri Bindu Paspati to Anika Sharma, which is still a Desi name. Can you talk to me about why you decided to change that name and where that name came from? Yeah, that's such a good question. So in 2014 is when I signed my first book deal and I had gotten my agent and my agent and I were having one of those first few phone calls where we were talking about where we saw my career. And of course, at that time, we saw New York Times bestsellers. Sorry, Stacey, I turned out to be a little bit of a disappointment in that regard right now, but we'll get there. In 2014, we were talking about it and she said, so you're publishing under your name. And I said, no, I want to publish under a pen name. And the reason at the time was because I was a teacher and I fall into a category or a genre that sort of dances between women's fiction and romance. But the key thing about romance at the time, especially, was that sexy time was really, really a thing. And I was a preschool teacher. So I kept thinking, I don't want to alienate the parents of these students if they find out that I'm a writer by reading something steamy and just assuming I'm telling you a three-year-old about it. So I had to change a little bit for that. And I wanted to give myself a little bit of anonymity. But I changed it to Sharma because that's my dad's first name. And he is the greatest human being in my life and God's gift to man, I'm convinced. But I think Anika actually came from my mom saying, hey, yeah, I was looking up names for you that you could potentially use as a pen name. How about this one? And I really liked it because it actually crossed cultures. And so there are European Anikas and American Anikas and African Anikas. And I kept thinking, okay, you know what? Across continents, if we're going there, this has more global appeal. Now, looking back, I think that I inherently saw a lot of the racism that comes with a very South Indian name. And so I realized the benefit of having Sharma as a last name puts the North Indian, South Indian bias kind of to rest in some regard. But looking back, particularly with the journey that I've taken with the Woke Desi, taking the journey through writing as well and really learning how to put my identity into words and find a very happy space, sometimes I regret it. Not because I don't love the name and the now brand that's been built under it, but more just because I am South Indian, I'm Telugu, and that's not something that I deny ever. If anyone says, hey, where are you from? It's immediately, oh, I'm from Hyderabad. So it's not something that I hide, but it's an inadvertently happened. And now, especially realizing and growing to a really comfortable place with my identity, it's something that I wish 
maybe I hadn't done or maybe that I picked a South Indian name. There's not a huge amount of regret because what's done is done. But at the same time, now knowing all of those different nuances and knowing the different layers of identity, both for me and broader society and really recognizing how many biases exist between East and West, North and South, different places regionally. It's definitely something that I think through a little bit more, although now I don't know if I'll ever go back either. It's interesting because that wasn't the intention per se, but certainly that barrier exists. And Sharma is almost like a Rashida Jones type name, right? Somewhat ethnically ambiguous where it kind of fits for North and South Indian audiences. I think that when I thought of Sharma, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, this is a great tribute to my dad. But I actually put the H in because he doesn't spell his name that way. So he spells it S-A-R-M-A. And I put the H in thinking, okay, well, it's for pronunciation purposes. But I 100% was just deluding myself thinking, okay, well, maybe it sounds a little more North Indian. And then people won't pick up a South Indian book, most likely because at the time, and even now, publishing is still largely North Indian. So it was a both insightful move back then, but also now that I look back a little bit, it's kind of filled with regret because of just the inherent self, I don't want to go as far as to say self-hatred, but just the cognizance that those issues existed even back then. And now looking at it, wishing I maybe had the courage to take the ownership of the story. I think that's such an interesting domain to see that in, in terms of choosing a pen name, because we've all kind of done that with our lives in some regard, especially when we're younger, right? Where we in this case, maybe you had that for business reasons or to sell more books in the back of your head, but like to fit in with people or to stay afloat in some way, we've kind of modified our identities in some way. But kind of on that topic of identity, I'm curious if over time, because this has now become your quote unquote public persona, if you've started to identify with that name more, do you find yourself like as you refer to yourself or as you think about yourself calling yourself Annika or does that feel like a separate identity, an alter ego of sorts? I'm very comfortable with it now and I feel more comfortable with it post podcast, less so with writing. When I was writing and my first book had launched in 2015 and since then, it was still something that took me a little bit of acclimatization to get used to because people would say Annika and it would take a couple of times for me to really pay attention. Whereas now it's inherently becoming something I respond to. Partially that's because when we were deciding to start the podcast, it was, okay, do you want to build this under the Annika Sharma brand? Because now you work in an Ivy League. And so if you work there and they find out you're talking about sex, what if that comes back on you professionally? So I just figured, okay, this is already existent as a creative element or creative entity. Let's just, you know, umbrella this in. And Nehal had called me Bindu accidentally on our first episode a couple of times. And so she had to change it in her phone so that she would learn to call me Annika. And once the podcast started doing well, and once my writing career started going quickly, people started calling me Annika more often, and I started responding to it. So I went to brunch with my husband and a friend of mine who only knows me through Instagram, uh, or has gotten to know me through Instagram recently. And she said, oh, Annika. And my husband had a moment of, oh, wait, what? Who? And I kind of had to smile at him and be like, well, welcome to my world now, you know, but the, the beauty of it is that it still offers a little bit of anonymity and it 
gives me a little bit of separation. I feel like Annika is the better dressed, slightly more eloquent, more intelligent version of Bindu, who is often in sweatpants and can't put two sentences together. So it's definitely a persona. It's now become something similar, like not that I'm on any level close to Beyonce, but Beyonce has Sasha Fierce, which is this, you know, entity that she puts on whenever she gets on stage. And I think it's sort of similar. Now I have a stage personality a bit that's a little more professional and a little bit more curated and something that I don't mind putting on my clothes and being like, this is a job. And then whenever I am, you know, normal and myself and a little more dorky and a little bit more all over the place and a more of an explosion of a human being, it gives you a little bit of separation between the two. And I I really value that because I am kind of private and it is sort of a funny dance to do between putting your face out there and also wanting to keep a lot of things to yourself. Do you remember the old Hannah Montana show? I have heard that so many times. Like, you (laughs) are living a Hannah Montana life. And I'm like, I am basically (laughs) Hannah Montana. Thank you very much. So I've had a lot of guests on the show that have dual careers, like death metal guitarist and dentist, teacher and nonprofit founder, engineer and priestess, people that are balancing almost two different lives. But you stand out because while you have a dual career, both are as a writer. So like the base skill is the same. You're both an author in terms of books and like writing these romantic fiction books that you alluded to, but you also write more technical material or you write for these Ivy League places and healthcare companies. So before we dive into those different careers, can you just tell me about when and how you found your passion for writing? I was much like any creative and kind of figuring that out when I was young, there was a natural proclivity towards writing. I used to write in journals And now I look back, I have no idea who I'm talking about in most of them because I used to use nicknames, which was not conducive for 15 years later when you don't know who any of these people are. But I used to write just notebooks on notebooks of journals and storytelling just within my own life. And my mom used to always look at me and be like, what are you writing them, Habartha? So, you know, now it's just becoming like this whole constant family joke. Like, oh, she knows is always in a book or she's always writing. And My parents actually did the opposite of what I think a lot of South Asian kids feel, which is, oh my gosh, my parents wanted me to be a doctor, an engineer, things like that. But my parents actually said, go into marketing or go into journalism. And I was the one who said, I want to go into healthcare. And they were the ones who caught, this is not for you. You're not, you're going to make it if you really want to make it, but I don't think you actually do. So I majored in sciences and I went on to get a master's degree in education and I was a teacher. And then I went back to get another master's degree in public health and it was always healthcare, but the writing was just sort of constantly brewing. I wrote my first book in 2012 and I was just about to enter my MED program. And in 2013, I finally finished the book. I took a couple of months post-graduation and decided to try and find an agent and get moving. And then I started my teaching career. And that's when all of those things started happening for the book. It was loosely based on my life at the time. And it was about a relationship. And of course, a relationship breaks you and you're decimated. And then what do you want to do for a writer? It's I'm going to write about it. And so that's how my first book came about. That was the event that sort of catalyzed my writing career from I'm writing journals and basically a whole bunch of gossip about other people in a notebook and, you know, made that into, okay, I'm writing stories now. And I think it was always in the cards, but I think it took 
the stars to align or, you know, the right alignment of everything happening in life at once uh, in order to really actually pursue it. So after that, it's just been something I couldn't let go of, particularly because it felt like a purpose because the doors started opening, not necessarily easily, but I didn't get tired of pushing against them. And that was the first time I think I felt like, yeah, you found exactly what you were meant to do because even the fights don't necessarily feel like they're really taking anything out of you. You really feel like you can get up another day and keep going. So writing has just been a huge, obviously, part of my life since then. And now looking forward, it's ultimately what I want to do full time once I can pay off my grad school loans and do all the things that normal people have to do first before they can hit that level of success. But it's really interesting how it kind of wound its way through my life and then eventually became the final destination because that wasn't the end goal when I started off in high school or college. One of the things that I realized with the podcast is you always hear this quote about when you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I think when we hear that quote initially, we start to think, oh, when you love what you do, it's going to be easy. You're going to want to do it all the time. And what I realized is, no, it's going to be tough. You're going to struggle. There are going to be days when you don't want to do it, but you won't mind. For whatever crazy reason, you continue to go back to that thing and continue to do it, even though you don't have to, even though normal people would just stop. <laughs> but yeah, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying. So I'm curious, when in those early days of writing, did you feel like, oh, I'm fulfilling a life goal to publish a book? Did you feel like I'm building a career as a writer? Was it just a hobby? Did you have any sort of future in mind for it or were you just writing at that time? Or maybe it was a little bit different because I know with like published books, you get the contract first, right? Sort of. So with this particular book, I had written it and it was actually entirely too long. So this is, I went in with a very healthy sense of just completely wanting to defeat the impossible. But when I say healthy, I mean, it was pretty naive, to be honest. I wrote a book that was 120,000 words. For the record, every genre out there has word guidelines, word count guidelines. So romance is typically 80,000 to 100,000 words. Mine was at 120,000 words and the story was entirely too long. So I ended up hacking it in half once I found out, which I didn't even research when I was writing the story because I was actually that dumb. So I had to go in and hack it in half and then polish up the first half. And that became what ended up becoming my first book. And I was learning very much on the job and kind of figuring out what the heck I was doing, but I don't think I ever saw it becoming what it became. And there was beauty in discovering that because you sort of blossom and you decide, oh, I really want to do this. And you just go all in on it and realize, okay, I might be good at this. And oh my gosh, the doors are opening really quickly. And oh my gosh, this is the best thing of my entire life. And this is exactly what I was meant to do. And I've never felt so fulfilled in my life. Those moments do happen and they're rare and they're like lightning in a bottle. But when you have to, when you find it, you just have to run with it. And that's kind of how I took it. And it's just led to this pretty incredible path so far. And now it's the undercurrent of everything. So even when I was getting my public health degree, even when I was teaching, I realized this entire time I want to be writing. And then even with the public health degree and then now working at Cornell, I was like, is writing the basis of my job? Is this what I get to do? And do all these skills I've picked up through writing, do I get to use those? Even if I'm still using my healthcare degrees, am I going to get to use this in the right spot? So it became something that, you know, people always talk about toolkits, right? The tools that you carry with you and that you utilize and 
it's a lot about can I use everything that I've learned through writing? And that actually became an incredibly applicable skill across the board. So I don't think I ever set out to become the next New York Times bestseller. Of course, somebody hopes that. But now it's becoming very much, I want a lengthy career. I want multiple book deals. I want to do this full time. And it's evolved over time as I've learned more. So I do want to ask you about that other writing career that you just started talking about where you're writing for companies, basically. So you started as a communications intern at Reproductive Health Access Project. You're a communications project manager for Wild Cornell Medicine now. The first question that I'll ask is, you clearly have this passion for writing, but now you've moved from this position where you were a communications intern to now you're a communications project manager, right? So how have your job responsibilities changed in that process? And do you feel like as you get to this management role, a little bit more out of touch with the creative aspect? Do you feel like you're still as hands-on and writing all the time? That's a really good question. I was thinking about this actually yesterday when I was trying to figure out, okay, what's my next move? And as a communications intern, they gave me a lot of creative projects in terms of reproductive health. So the Reproductive Health Access Project, for those of you who don't know, was actually a really pivotal organization in Dr. Mira Shah's book, You're the Only One I've Ever Told. It's about abortion and abortion rights in the U.S. And so RAP works with miscarriage support and abortion rights and abortion access and teaching clinicians how to do it safely. And also, of course, contraception. So that is still to this day, a passion area of healthcare that I'm into. And when I was there, they let me do a little bit more creative work in terms of writing these things we called contraceptive pearls, which are information, tiny snippets of information about contraception for clinicians specifically. And then they let me write a little book. It was like 24, 25 pages about historical figures who have helped the reproductive health fight move forward in the U.S., So I did get to do some more creative things. Now, as I moved into management and especially in academia, the creative element really isn't there. And that's something that I struggle with a lot, especially because academia is very much old guard. It's an old boys club and people are very resistant to change. So creativity looks very different in academia and in management than it does with, say, a writing career where you're making up people and you're making up their stories and you get to have imaginary conversations in your head. I mean, I guess you could still do that in management also, but you probably would be looked down on slightly. But management and academia in particular definitely limit some of it. I write, like you said, in a more technical way. I write more manual, as my boss and I say. It's always very, one, you have to do this, two, do this. Or, you know, I write nomination letters for faculty who are looking for grants and awards. And the tough part about that, too, is that as an author, you literally get to write your own story. You get to create people and worlds and stories and actions and drama and heartbreak out of nothing. And that's an incredible superpower to have. But whenever you're doing writing or communications within a company, the difference is that often those stories are being told for somebody else. And that means that you have to meet their vision and not your own. So the stories that I write are about the greatness of all of these faculty members or the greatness of 
these institutions that we work for or the science that are happening. It's a different kind of story and it requires a different skill set than writing a book and being able to make it all up and to fly by the seat of your pants and say, you know what, today this character's in London, the, tomorrow this character's in New York, whereas now we're all in New York, there's no moving. And these researchers have been doing this for 30 years and they're darn good at what they do. So it's a very different kind of storytelling and it takes a lot of turning on and off your skill set accordingly to be able to hit both of those at the same pace and to create success in both of them. It sounds like the experiences when you're writing creatively for a book versus technically for a company are very different. But would you say that one feels easier or harder to you than the other? I think that creativity is always the path that I lean toward naturally. Science is the one I have to force myself into a little bit more. And I did that to myself. I'll be completely honest. I did it to myself. It is my fault that I'm in science. <laughs> it used to be, okay, well, I'm 50-50. Maybe I'm 50% creative and 50% scientific. But particularly during the pandemic, I think my attitude really shifted. And I realized, oh my gosh, you just have to lean into this. Creativity is exactly where your calling is. You're much happier doing it. And it does come much easier. You have days of writer's block where... You can't put together two sentences. You sound like a buffoon and you're writing and you're thinking, oh my gosh, the whole world is going to hate me after I write this. But you still push through because you know that it's there. The well has temporarily dried, but you can refill it very quickly. It's a little less easy for me sometimes with science because there isn't quite as much creative control and there isn't quite as much self-reliance to be able to create the story. With writing in a fictional sense or, you know, in a creatively, you get to really tell it the way you want to tell it. So I think that that definitely does come easier for me. And I've leaned into it particularly in the last year. I was actually having this conversation with someone recently. This is a little bit off of your question, but I was talking about how the last year, year and a half now has accelerated a lot of the thoughts that people have had about their careers in ways that they didn't anticipate. Perhaps all of us would have been exactly where we are if we're discontent with our careers or if we're thinking about a pivot or if we're thinking, okay, what's my next step? Maybe that would have come in five years had the pandemic not happened. But because the pandemic fostered such a huge change across society, I think it accelerated a lot of those thoughts for so many people. I've read so much about things like the great resignation, which is how recruiters are expecting that a lot of people are going to be quitting their jobs once things begin to go back to normal because they've realized over the last year and a half, probably now going on two years, that life has not been exactly what they wanted it to be and that maybe people will find the courage to make those moves. But I'm kind of in the same boat in the sense that I love my job. I think that research and science are amazing, but I've also learned over the last year professionally to lean into the creative side. And now I'm kind of at that crossroads. And I don't know if I would have been at that crossroads this soon had the pandemic not happened. So your question is actually a really good one right now because it is helping me get some clarity in terms of, okay, what's easier? What makes you happier? And which way do you want to lean? Do you want to lean creatively or do you want to lean scientifically? Right now, the answer would still be creative endeavors make me the happiest. That's so interesting for me to hear because the professional work or the science work, writing about these faculty, it inherently has constraints around it, right? So in that regard, I would have guessed that that would be easier. But I think you just have this natural affinity towards creative work that ends up making that type of writing easier. 
I work for the Office of the Research Dean, which means that there's an entire enterprise and thousands of faculty members underneath you. You never really get to know them in a way that makes them shine outside of they have achieved a Nobel and they've achieved the X, Y, and Z awards at their career and they made these pivotal discoveries. They're very much highlighted based on their achievements, as it should be, but we don't get to know them for who they are. In these award letters, you don't get to say They play tennis every Sunday with their daughter and they have three dogs and they volunteer at the pet shelter and they're genuinely good people. You don't get that opportunity to really get to know them. Whereas whenever you're creating a character for fiction, you have to know those quirks about them. And I think that that's part of it at the end of the day, too, is really that relationship you have with the human condition. If you're tied in, if that's something that you thrive on, that also makes academic writing a little bit different than creative writing for me the amount of connection we get to have with the people that we're working with and even the characters that we're writing about, whether they're real or whether they're fictional. You mentioned the pandemic and how it's forced you to kind of reflect on your career. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is that you have a three book contract right now and you're building this creative career. And on the other side, you went and you got a master's in education and a master's in public health. So I'm wondering what prompted you in the first place to pursue and build a life around the creative work Now that you've reflected or started to reflect over the pandemic, do you think you would have taken that path a little bit differently? I have thought about that question so many times, so I'm really glad that you asked it. I have thought about whether I would have taken a different path had I had the knowledge that I have now, especially post, I don't want to say post-pandemic, we're still in it, but a year and a half into this. And the truth is, is I wouldn't have the knowledge I have now had I not taken the path that I took to get here. So if I didn't get the MED and worked with kids and loved it and then realized it wasn't for me, or had I not gone and gotten that public health degree and realized I still absolutely love health and medicine and I find it absolutely incredible, or had I not had this pandemic happen and had a successful podcast and had a successful writing career and been at home for the last year to work on both of those things, I wouldn't have the knowledge that I would have now. So if I had to go back and do it again, I'd probably still have to do it the same way because I wouldn't have had this knowledge. I wouldn't have had the expertise. I would have had a different skill set completely that maybe wouldn't have allowed me to succeed the way that I have. And I'm also very much not someone who looks back and regrets. That's just inherently not who I am. I don't like to do that. And I think that things do happen for a reason, even if the dots aren't connecting in front of you, they will ultimately and I'll be fine. So once again, I think that it would have turned out this way anyway, but it is good to know at least so that I can move forward with that knowledge. Now it's really about what you do with what you know. At the very least, it removes the FOMO. I think that's, that's the thing that I always think about when I look back at the fact that I almost went through with the medicine path. The fact that I did all the work for it. I took the MCAT, I did the shadowing, I got the silly biochem major, which I really hated while I was in it, but didn't recognize at the time. The fact that I can like look back and all that and the fact that I did the work makes me more sure of my decisions now. I love kids. And so when I was growing up, people used to sometimes say you should be a teacher. And I didn't think I wanted to be. I taught dance throughout college and I'm obsessed with kids. I think they're so much fun and their view on the world is absolutely transformative if you really pay attention. But I thought that that was maybe what I was meant to do for a while. And in the grand scheme, I don't regret any of it. But 
it just wasn't meant for me. And I, at least, like you said, it removes that element of, oh my gosh, should I have done that? No, I did it. And it was definitely not for me. So it's okay. You know, I know I learned and I took it and I took those lessons and now I know I'll be an amazing mom. And I, I am a fabulous friend aunt to every kid that comes across my path, but I don't necessarily see myself teaching again. And that's okay too. And I think we always put this pressure on us to think we go all in on stuff, which means you have to go all the way and succeed at every single thing you do. That I think limits you a little bit if you put that pressure of success on yourself. And ultimately, as long as you say you gave it your fair shot and decided it wasn't for you, then it's still a success at the end of the day because you just pivot and your life looks eclectic and all over the place. And like you took life by the balls rather than saying, okay, I pushed myself to do this and kept pushing for greater and greater things within a field that I knew was wrong for me the whole time, just because that was the right thing to do or the most successful thing to do on a linear basis or, you know, conventionally successful. It, I don't know. I thought about that a lot and I, I don't regret any of it. I think my career has not been as linear as perhaps a conventionally successful person has you know, would say, but it's also yielded so many incredible things that people have not had the opportunity to say. People often say, I wish I could start a podcast. You know this. If I had the time, I'd start a podcast or someday I'll write that book. And I am in my early thirties and I get to say, I've done all of those things and I've gone and gotten my master's degrees and I know what graduate education looks like. I've been privileged enough to know what that feels like and what college education feels like and what writing a book feels like, what it feels like to get rejected from things that you really love doing because I have gotten rejected from book deals and I can at least feel like I've lived life fully. I think it's easier to say that with confidence now. And when you say that I resonate with all of that and I really love the fact that you just pointed out you've done all these things that other people say that they want to do, right? Or that they wish they could do. You know, even as I was going through your resume, I was thinking she's at Penn State. She's studying biobehavioral health and neuroscience. She's volunteering at the hospital. Like this girl is for sure pre-med or something's going on there. And then you came out and you became a teacher. So that, that transition had really shocked me. And so I'm wondering, you're saying all this with confidence now, but at that time, were you as confident about what you were doing or were you just, you know, I need to try teaching, but I'm also interested in medicine. I don't know where to go. Like, were you shaky a little bit? I had no idea what I was doing. So let's just make that clear too, because I hear that quite a few times I've heard you seem so confident about your career path, but I think I'm just confident in feeling uncomfortable. I understand that that feeling of discomfort will ultimately yield some sort of gain, but you have to grow very, very comfortable with being deeply uncomfortable. And basically my medicine in quotes career was stopped because I am atrocious at chemistry. My dad is a chemical engineer. You really would think that I would have done really well. It took me three times to pass Chem 101. And so my dad was like, I think your dreams might need to change a little bit. You might need to change this a little. And I was like, okay, great. I'll go into nurse practitioning. I actually did a semester of nursing school at Boston College, and it was so terrible for me mentally. And also, I just didn't have the heart for it. I love medicine. I love health, but it wasn't for me. 
being there in doing clinicals and being on this accelerated track to get a BSN and an MSN. It was not the place I should have been. And I'm very glad that I backed out when I did. At that point, there was a huge fork in the road. I didn't know. I was like, should I go back to nursing? Should I apply for a different program? Maybe the program was wrong for me. Or the other thing was, is that I was teaching because I was thinking about a pediatric career, pediatric nursing. And the truth is is that many pediatricians don't get the hands-on experience to calm a child or to be with a child or to really take care of a child outside of the appointments that they see. And so I wanted to grow comfortable because I didn't have experiences changing diapers or even getting very comfortable holding a baby. So I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's teach for a year, earn some money, apply, take some time. And then I went to nursing school. It wasn't right for me. Came back to teaching and came back to my job. And there, one of the moms that was in the classroom was a faculty member at Penn State who taught in the MED program that I got recruited to. So it was also about taking the opportunity while it presented itself. It was a grant-funded program, so I was going to walk out without any loans. And it was a master's degree. And it was something I was already doing that I knew I was good at. And so I thought, okay, you can make this into a career. And it was early intervention, which works with healthcare systems in order to deliver services to children around the county who have disabilities. So I thought, all right, this is actually a really great transition, and it's still incorporating everything I've learned. And then I did teach for a few years, and then I wrote the book. And of course, the rest is history. And we once again pivoted. My public health degree was in maternal and child health. So a lot of these are interests that you carry with you that you just turn into a career that might not look quite as typical. So like you said, if you looked at my resume and you said she majored in these things, she worked at this hospital, it does look very pre-med. However, it is really what we make of it too. I had those options, but there've been multiple forks in the road. And each time it's taken quite some time to sit there and stare at the two paths and then say, okay, maybe I need to do something in the middle and just make my own because I have no idea what I'm doing. And it's really more about taking opportunity than it is about knowing exactly what you're meant for sometimes. It's really just about diving in and saying, okay, I'm just going to build this parachute once I jump off the cliff. I think one of the things that I'm taking away is like the ability to give something your all, but then to not feel like you need to go the whole way, right? So then the ability to give something your all and still be able to pivot as you learn more about yourself along the way, I think is huge. When I was in college, my RA coordinator said something to me that still sticks with me. It's something I think about every day. And it was, you just have to keep moving. And movement doesn't always have to mean forward steps into what you're trying to venture into. Sometimes it means sideways. Occasionally it means backwards. Every once in a while, it's a diagonal. And sometimes you just go off on a path that you had no idea even existed. And that has literally turned into a fundamental way that I want to run my life, which is as long as you are moving, you are okay. And you don't have to constantly think that the road is going to pave its way in front of you or that it's going to have to look a certain way. Sometimes it will not look the way you thought it was going to look and you just have to take an opportunity and run with it. That has given me a lot of flexibility in able, being able to admit failure and saying, hey, this isn't right for me, but I tried it. And it's also given me a lot of opportunity in going, I didn't see that coming, but that was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And all of those things have ultimately led to what I feel like is a really fulfilling life, but 
it also lets me feel like I can always do better and I can always keep moving. It gives you a really great sense of resilience too, because you always feel like there is no end all. There's no ultimate failure in all of this because there's always something that's going to, the door will open somewhere and you can sneak through it if you are looking for it. So I think that that gives you a lot of peace too in moving forward. Annika, your latest book, Love, Chai, and Other Four-Letter Words, is the first of three books. Can you tell me a little bit about it? And I'm wondering especially where you draw your inspiration from, because this girl happens to also live in New York City, also happens to be in the medical field a little bit. She's a biomedical engineer, from what I recall. So yeah, can you just tell me about that? Yeah. So Love Chai and Other Four-Letter Words is the first in a series called The Chai Masala Club, which follows a group of four Indian friends who all have different kinds of backgrounds. One of them is British Indian, but has gone to college and met all of these guys in college. And she's in the group and they all live in New York City. They all have different backgrounds from different parts of India. And they all end up with love stories that look a little bit different across the board and all have some sort of problem involved with them, whether it's cultural or whether it's just them being idiots, whatever it is, they all have issues somewhere along this story. And each book is focusing on a different character. So right now it's a three book deal. Potentially if it sells well, it could become four and all of four will get their own book. And the first book is focused on Kiran, who is a, as you said, biomedical engineer, and she does live in New York and she meets her neighbor named Nash, who is actually named after a child I worked with because he had such a great spirit and he was just so damn cute. And I loved his name. So Nash got his name from there and they meet and they both have baggage of their own. Nash has been coming from a very rough background, a family history that is really tough to face and has a lot of abandonment in it. And Karen has the opposite where her family has gone through a very K3G-esque situation where her sister has essentially married someone that she wanted and really kind of destroyed her family. So Karen doesn't want to fall in love with someone and they end up meeting and the rest of it is the story that you'll read if you buy the book. The inspiration behind it, some of it is autobiographical in the sense that details about New York. New York is one of those cities that I have grown to become obsessed with. I was actually terrified of New York almost my entire life. So I moved here when I was about 30 and I was scared for all 30 years before that. So I was very much a nurtured love affair with the city and it just opened up possibility. And I thought, man, love stories here have the element of everything because everything happens in New York. Everything wild can happen in New York. And so I just decided to set it here and I was growing as I was writing the story. I actually had to write this book three times from start to finish. So it's been a very long road since 2017 and which is when I moved to the city. So each version that I've written of the story has gotten slightly more familiar with the city as well. So it's been a growth process from day one to now. And I find my inspiration in day-to-day moments, but I also find it in the things that other people face. I find it incredible that people have rough childhoods and grow up to be really well-adjusted adults. I find finding out people's background and realizing why they are the way they are to be mind-blowing, which probably explains exactly why I had a psych major to begin with, because I just find this stuff so cool. But kind of my inspiration comes from everywhere, from the day-to-day things, from the way that city lights look on a summer night in New York, or 
the way that you feel when you get off a flight and you know that someone's at the end of the gate waiting for you or what it feels like at a big Indian dinner where everybody is stuffing you full of food and you know that more food is coming and your belly can't take it and you're still going to eat anyway because you just know that it's making everybody else happy and that you're just so content in that moment. Those are all things that I want to capture through writing and it's just been so beautiful that I've been able to do that. So at least I hope I am able to do that and that I do it well, but that's where the inspiration lies and the stories that I tell have a little bit of me in them. I think it's impossible not to, but a lot of it is also just watching people and writing about the human condition. So your book was recommended to library catalogs. It's signed to be an audio book and it's seen a lot of success from indie book reviewers. So I'm curious what you want people to feel or take away from the book. So the storyline for this first book is a little bit cliche in that it's Indian girl meets white guy. There's a conflict between families, you know, that kind of thing can get very old very quickly. But I think that when you write, you want to approach every story with new eyes. You want to add something to it. So someone who has no experience with Indian culture deep down, maybe doesn't have too many Indian friends or South Asian friends as a whole and wants to get lost and walks away thinking the culture is beautiful, but also nuanced. That is what I want people to take away is that there is nuance to everything, including the beautiful parts of our cultures and the very tough elements of our cultures, which is how I approach life. And I think it comes across even in the podcast, even in writing, it's always about taking the good with the bad. And I want readers to be able to understand that at the end of the day, we all take pieces of each other with us and we all do have inherently the same human conditions and same situations, even if the background behind those situations was a little bit different, that the emotions are still the same. And I would want someone to read this book and say, oh, I got a little bit of insight into what South Asian cultures look like. And for all it's worth, they have their flaws, but at the same time, they have this incredible beauty about them too. And I actually just read a review, which you're not supposed to do, but on a good day, sometimes I feel strong enough to do it. And somebody had written who was Mexican. I love my culture, but it's really hard sometimes not to have people that understand it, even when you love sharing it. And I thought that that was such a beautiful sentiment because it's something that brown people face every day. We all have these things that we absolutely love about being brown and that we love sharing, but that sometimes it's nice just to sit with your other brown friends and understand exactly what you guys have gone through together and had share in that experience. And likewise, it's the same, you know, when you talk to somebody who's very different than you and you both realize you fell in love and had a heartbreak and you knew both of you that you had bonded over something that was similar, despite whatever you guys were facing at the time. So those are the moments, those moments of solidarity and those moments of connection that I hope a reader walks away with reading the story and that they are able to spot all the layers that come with being human. That's amazing because it reaches a non-South Asian audience. And like you were saying, it's kind of a blend of exposure to South Asian culture, but also to the human experience generally. But it does seem like there's a lot of interplay between this and another one of your projects, The Woke They See, which is a podcast about some of the more taboo topics among South Asians. And you've had episodes on everything from dating to infertility, so like lighter topics to much heavier topics. I'm a very avid podcast listener, and that was the origin of me wanting to start a podcast. It came from the fact that I loved listening to podcasts. So 
given that you've been traditionally a writer, you know, you could have been a blogger, you could have been a journalist. There were a lot of different ways that you could have approached talking about these taboo topics among the South Asian community. I'm curious what interested you in the podcast medium. I loved listening to inspirational podcasts and crime podcasts. I'm a big fan of murders, not actually doing them, but listening to stories about them. So I found the storytelling ability and the connection there also to be the selling point for podcasts. But with the Woke Daisy, we started two years ago and there wasn't really a brown presence within the podcasting space. It started to blow up a lot in the last year, year and a half. But when we first started conceptualizing it, it was January of 2019, we were kind of one of the very few. There were definitely some out there, but it was not a huge presence. And we wanted to talk about everything. We could not narrow it down. And we were like, fine, let's just talk about everything then. We'll go in and we'll see what entertainment people we could talk about or talk to. And we'll see what really tough topics we can have a conversation about. And it ended up snowballing, which was amazing and growing and growing. But I think that ultimately it just came down to the fact that we didn't have a lot of these conversations growing up. We, you know, I, it, I think we, especially being in New York, you hear a lot of stories about people who are growing up in spaces in New Jersey, spaces in the Bay Area, and how they had 25 Indian kids in their class, or their whole class was South Asian and Asian, and white people were in the minority and things like that. I sure as hell did not grow up like that. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania with four other Indian kids in my class, and we all know each other, but we are not all friends. I mean, we're friendly, but we're not like the people that still hang out as adults and really chill a lot and our families are friends, but it's more situational than it is really us pursuing deep friendships with those people. And I wanted to connect with people like that too, who don't necessarily have that experience of being completely surrounded or being in, as we called in college, Brown Town. We don't know what that feels like. And so I wanted to be able to talk about some of those things in a space that was accessible. And podcasting, as you know, is just the most amazing place to be able to do that. And writing is different for a podcast than it is for anything else. There's definitely an element of being semi-scripted and then realizing, oh my gosh, I'm really terrible at reading things out loud when I have to say them. And then switching back and saying, okay, maybe we need to be able to pivot a little and make this very conversational. And the writing has changed from episode one to now episode 80, I think we're on. So, you know, being able to change writing styles, but still be able to tell a story ultimately is its biggest sell, I think. And it's probably the most fun part about all of this. In college, you were on the Ross team. You were part of Penn State's Dandia on Fire dance team. You were in the Hindu Student Council. We've even bumped into each other in a Telugu speaking practice room on Clubhouse. So it seems like even though you grew up in rural Pennsylvania, you've managed to stay attached to your roots, your South Asian roots. One of the things I'm wondering about is now that you've started the Woke Desi, which has developed quite a following and a big community around it, has it changed the way that you relate to your South Asian culture? Like, do you feel more proud, more attached to it? Or do you feel more or less the same, given that you've already had a strong attachment through other activities? Oh, that's such a good question. It's been such an evolution. So growing up without that many Indian kids, we had a Diwali show, but it was very limited in terms of access to the coolest clothes or the coolest movies because we didn't have an Indian store that was 
particularly. It was one of those Indian stores that kind of bought things in bulk every few months, but it was still kind of not up with the times necessarily. We didn't have a whole lot of access. We didn't have a temple nearby or anything like that. So a lot of the culture that I had was literally just my parents. Um, and then some, of course, our community that tried, but they all came in the 80s. So it was 1986 India for 20 years of my life. In college, it got a little bit better. As you said, I danced. I did dance through high school and I had you know a group of friends that we all did what we could with what we had. But it wasn't until Ross where I really realized what it was like to be immersed with a lot of other South Asian kids all going for the same thing. And it was so overwhelming. I could not find my role anywhere for the longest time because I didn't know what socialization looked like with South Asians, which I know sounds so funny because you're like, it's just socializing. It's really not that hard. But it was apparently very hard for me. And I didn't know what to do or how to relate because a lot of the cultural elements that I got were religious. They were not necessarily societal. They weren't trendy. They weren't what's happening in Bollywood or who are the coolest singers that are coming up right now. So Ross was good because it grounded me a little bit. And then being on the board for Danyan Fire, that was also really pivotal because I got to connect with our community. Um, I got to go back into the state college community and run all of the dances for all the kids that were coming up. So we had like 37 kids, three different groups, 14 hours a weekend, like trying to teach them all how to dance. And, and that was also really eye-opening to say, okay, this is something you can do where you can teach other people. You're not as disconnected as you think you are. And then, you know, it, it was just an evolution into the podcast world was eye-opening because it's, and writing, too, honestly, writing, too, has helped me because I found a group of writers who have all been very successful, who are South Asian women. And podcasting itself has helped me understand the thing that we all say but never completely take to heart, which is South Asians are not a monolith. And it took me so long to really own that and to understand what that meant. And I still have moments where I still assume, oh, culture is religion versus culture is culture. And, you know, it's the patterns that you go through with your family. It's the way that you were brought up. It's where you were brought up. And all of the different details and the nuance that I keep saying I want people to connect with are the things I'm learning every day. So I'd say that the comfort level has grown with where my identity is and where my role in all of that is. But I would also say that my world has expanded immensely since starting the podcast in recognizing South Asian identities across the board and saying, oh, my gosh, so many people's identity looks nothing like mine. And not only is that okay, but you need to learn more about it. There are things that you are missing out on that you'll never experience. And there are things that lessons in history, painful facts, histories of our own people that you'll never get completely caught up on because there's just too much. And you're just going to have to make the effort to learn. So I think to answer your question in this very roundabout way, sorry, is that my identity has expanded a lot. I think that I always had it. I was always confident in who I was, but maybe not where my role was in the world. And now not only am I comfortable with my role in the world, I'm also constantly pushing out the boundaries to understand more of everybody else and also figure out, you know, move myself to, to adjust to that a little bit. And that's 100% the podcast and writing that has given me that gift because I was not in that place in college or even post-college. So you talked about how doing the podcast has helped you think more about the fact that we're not a monolith. But 
as you're getting more of these episodes of the podcast and as you've done so many of these podcast episodes, I'm wondering what other big takeaways you've had about South Asian culture. So many. I think that, like I said, the identity has broadened so much. For example, I say, whenever you say, I hate this question, but what are you? Or who do you, how do you identify as a South Asian? I would say something like, I'm a straight female, Hyderabadi, Telugu, and that I come from a Brahmin family, although I'm still very conflicted on caste. But that's part of those identity things is also recognizing where your privileges have lied, what opportunities you've been given based on all of these different striations. And also seeing how potentially you could have played a role, whether it was intentional or not, in the oppression of other people. And I've learned to be challenged by it and to accept the challenge and to once again sit with that discomfort. And it's been really eye-opening because my identity has kind of shifted a little bit. I used to define myself as a very strict, like, yeah, I'm from Andhra and I do this and I do that. And that's how other people identify themselves. They say they're Marathi or they say they're from UP. or they, And then you started meeting people that are half and half or people who I remember a group of friends of mine are Cindy and their families were displaced during the partition. The last two generations have all grown up in Hong Kong. So I was like, where's your home in India? And this was when I first met them. I said something like that. And they were like, well, technically Delhi, but no one really lives there because everyone lives in Hong Kong. And I remember just, uh, what does that mean? And I think those moments of glaring obviousness that you don't know what you're doing are the best places to go, oh, I really don't know. Let, Let me figure this out. Let me see. And it's caused me to redefine a lot of the way that I define myself, the way that people define themselves. And it's opened my eyes a lot. So my takeaways there are that there is no one definition of identity across the board. There's no one definition, even, and I'm sure, Serge, you've probably heard about this, but some people don't identify with the word brown. Some people don't identify with the word, the word, the word South Asian. Some people hate the word they see. Some people don't like just being called, you know, like an immigrant or they just say I'm American, not Indian or Pakistani or Bangladeshi. So that in of itself is already indicative of these identity shifts that are happening, especially within our generation, the people that have these multiple cultures to balance and these different identities that they associate with. So it's been a lot about learning about that and what makes people tick and saying, okay, so how do you identify? Tell me more about yourself. Let me know what your family history looks like. And let me learn something from you today, as opposed to saying, oh, okay, great. So you identify as Marathi. That means that you're, you know, I don't know, from Mumbai and obviously, you know, upper middle class or whatever. Like you just have learned, I've learned a lot more about what people's backgrounds say and what you can infer and how many questions to ask and how many details to learn and how cool that can be, how we're all at interplay between our, you know, SES and how our culture and our histories in the past have all influenced how we all interact with one another. It's just really fascinating. And I think that that's my biggest takeaway is to always be open to that and to redefine your identity boundaries. I've found that as I've done more and more episodes, I've also had a similar realization that we initially think that maybe X, Y, and Z are the constraints around what it means to be South Asian. 
or South Asian diaspora, but those really expand as you meet more and more people and you see how they relate to that part of their identity. So another thing that I find intriguing about your podcast is that y'all talk about topics that are taboo among the South Asian community. And on the show, you're often speaking to people that regularly speak about these taboo topics. So what has been your takeaway in terms of how to approach these types of topics? Because all of us have had to like talk to that one racist uncle or like (laughs) when you're talking to someone that is very patriotic about India and maybe they'll say like problematic things or there's all sorts of taboo topics that we we have to come across as diaspora members, right? So yeah, what have been your takeaways in terms of talking about those topics? I've learned so much how to be gentle but firm in approaching those topics and also not being afraid to do the call out and the challenge and to be able to do it respectfully, which I think is a key thing because in a world that's right now wound very tightly after a year and a half of a lot of trauma, it's really hard for people to be able to keep their temper when they're seeing an injustice in front of them because everybody is in a phase of reactivity and immediately going, oh my gosh, that's wrong. Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you being more open? Why do you do this? And I think that this has come from the interview process, that extra pause that you take to give someone a second to collect themselves and to elaborate on a point. I've learned to ask questions and hopefully wait that extra second of silence to see if maybe they'll say one more thing. And often doing that has led to a lot of really great conversations with people that probably wouldn't have heard us otherwise, not just on the podcast, but like you said, with the uncle or the family member who is being particularly difficult about a certain situation and being a little bit bigoted and you're deeply uncomfortable to be able to give that extra pause and say, why do you think that? And then often within the justification of why they think the way they think, you'll hit some sort of gold mine that you can capitalize on to change their mind. And that is my biggest takeaway. I think that the podcast has taught me, but also with approaching tough topics is to give people that extra second, because often you will find a place that you could utilize to open up a real discussion and be able to kindly approach it. It takes a little patience and it sometimes takes swallowing back what you really want to say, which is often not very nice or particularly patient. But if you're willing to do it, it can lead to a lot of change. I know with my own parents, I've had those conversations with my mom in particular. I've had those conversations when I was trying to explain BLM. She wasn't really saying anything that was super inflammatory, but it was just problematic enough that I said, okay, why do you think that? And I waited a couple extra seconds and more came out about her trauma in India and all the colorism that all the women faced and all the men faced, everybody faces. Then that just led to, okay, well, so maybe dark skin is seen badly in our cultures. Maybe that's something that we need to work on. And it turned into this really, really interesting conversation. And I have not heard her say anything problematic since then. So the exploration of our own identity within the context of really tough situations can often lead to conversations that get to some roots that you may not have anticipated before. And there's some beauty in that because you can foster conversations and change people's minds towards hopefully helping them see the light. So the last question I have about the podcast is that your show was highlighted by Spotify with billboards around 
NYC and San Fran, which was huge. I think a lot of listeners of the show, a lot of South Asian creatives, like all of us felt so much pride and just celebration when we saw that. So it was like a really great moment for all of us. And I'm wondering if you have any other highs or lows from your podcast journey that really stand out to you. Thank you. Yeah, that was a good one. And Forbes was the other one alongside you. So I think that that was a day that was very, very fun to welcome alongside all of you as well. It was a really, really big highlight. We've had some low moments. I think moments where we've realized we're in over our heads with topics that we're discussing or sometimes looking back at the beginning. Now, I like I said, I don't like looking back because it always leads you to where you are. So there's no point in wishing you could change it. But occasionally the earlier episodes, I wish we'd done not only more research, but we had thought through some of the implications a little more deeply because now knowing what I know over these last two years, I wouldn't approach those same topics exactly the same way. I'd probably add more layers to them. I'd probably do more research. I'd look into more of the factors that influence those issues. For example, period poverty. There's so much there to uncover, but I think we only kind of maybe vaguely lifted the lid on it, but didn't really delve in. And so I think I would be a little more fearless. So sometimes the criticisms that we get are about earlier episodes and some of the hate that we get is about earlier episodes. And I wish that I had all the information to go back and fix all of it, but it's also part of your journey. And I think other low points have just been the moments where people don't understand what you're trying to do or that you're really going in with the best of intents, because you will always get those people that say you're so wrong on everything. And then when you try and correct it or you you try and say, okay, I want to learn, tell me, you know, let me go do some reading. I'll come back to you. And they're like, no, but you're just, you're just wrong all around. And you're like, okay, well, this is, this is upsetting. I think those are probably the lower moments and, and the days too, where you just feel like you are tackling topics that don't really have a solution and you carry the weight with you. There are certain episodes that I carry with me that I think about every single day. And when I hear those guest stories, especially the ones that don't actually make the final episodes and the cuts that we make, the guests that have cried while we were recording or the hugs that we've had to give guests whenever we recorded live and they needed a minute to pause and Those are the things that I carry with me. And they're both high points in the sense that we bonded, but the low points in the sense that we know that someone is reliving their trauma again for us and that these conversations still have to happen. Those are really hard when you realize how many obstacles you're up against in trying to make these changes. And I think any change maker, any podcaster, any creative, anybody who's trying to leave the world a little bit better than when the way they found it is always going to feel that hurdle. But it's still a sucky place to be on some days. And it can be really upsetting to have to carry that. So those are probably the lowest, but I would definitely say there's been far more highs than lows on that journey. And and I can't wait to see where it goes. When you do get criticism about the podcast, how do you shake it off? I usually decide first whether it's valid or whether it's someone who's in a really angry space who's just looking for a target on that particular day. It can go either direction, but I know there have been valid criticisms and I we'll always try and learn from that because there's no way I can learn. I can know everything, but if you're called out, you owe the person calling you out and you owe yourself to do better and to learn about exactly where you went wrong. And one of them was, I know on that period poverty episode, 
one of us. It was probably me. I have no idea because it's been two years now and I don't even remember the episode that clearly. Someone said Sikhism is an offshoot of Hinduism. I did not know that Hindu nationalists use that phrase to erase Sikhs and their impact on Indian society or society in the world as a whole. I had no idea. So we got a lot of flack for that recently because someone had gone back and listened to it and then told someone else and then it started, started a tweet storm and all of these people were calling us some very not nice names. And I went through and I read the entire thread because I'm some sort of masochist. And I thought, okay, this is a place where you've got to apologize and you need to learn. So this is the time to go do some reading. And other times we've had people intentionally choose the worst of you. And in those moments, it's like, all right, well, I wish you well, but you know, I don't know you. You don't know me. This is not, we're just going to have to just keep moving forward. I think that there's been a little bit of a thick skin developed between the podcast and between writing, because both of those are pieces of you that you're putting out into the world. And when people criticize it, your inherent reaction, your first reaction is to become either defensive or to kind of recoil a little bit and be like, Oh man, that hit really hurt. But at some point you get stronger and you begin to feel like you can tolerate the hits a little bit better. And it's not a personal attack, even though you have poured yourself into these projects. And so it's the same with writing. I go through that. Sometimes people write reviews that are not very nice and that tear down work that you've done for three or four years. And I always think of that quote too. I think it was like Kat Von D or somebody like that who said you could be the sweetest, juiciest peach in the world and there's still going to be someone in the world who doesn't like peaches. So that's usually what I go with. And if it's a really hard criticism, I'll take some time and let myself be miserable about it. But there's also a time limit on that. It's usually, okay, you woke up the next day. Great. Now you got to keep going. You got to keep moving forward. And so that's probably the best way I deal with it. I don't know if it always works, but it's, it's done a pretty good job so far. Both of those are super relatable to me. I know when I started the podcast, my first big quandary was, am I brown enough to host this show? And you not knowing a detail about Sikhism is just so relatable to me because I, for most of my life, I didn't even look into my South Asian identity that much. Like the reason I speak Telugu now is because I watch Telugu movies, like Ravi Teja movies, which is like the furthest thing away from educational. So... <laughs> I can totally relate to like not knowing everything and feeling like you're being held to that standard sometimes, which can be frustrating because you are at the end of the day trying to do a good thing. And on the other side, I think all of us creatives have just learned over time that some people are just going to have a bad day and that'll manifest online and you just kind of have to roll with the punches, right? You see it and you move on. The point that you brought up about wondering if you're brown enough is such a poignant one in all forms of representation, because when there's either so few of you or when you feel like you have to be the flag bearer for everybody, the pressure isn't on you to know everything and nobody can carry that weight. I had this conversation actually with a number of writer friends of mine, some of whom are really successful. They have Netflix deals and movie deals and even they were saying, it doesn't matter what level of success you reach because at the end of the day, every one of us worries about whether we're representing well and whether we're doing it justice and whether we are we have to put ourselves on a higher pedestal to represent everybody and that can be an incredibly debilitating place to be creatively because 
Well, really, if I think about it now that I have experience in academia, it could be debilitating there too, because my boss is black and she's an associate dean. And I remember discussing with her once that the success that minorities feel in academia is often that they have to be perfect because they're representative of their entire race, particularly in STEM topics, because people who traditionally are underrepresented are like, well, we made it and they don't see enough of us. And so we have to measure up in some form. And it feels exactly the same way a lot with creative things, especially with a podcast called The Woke Lacey, which inherently just puts a lot of pressure on us to be woke. And there are very, very many times that we fall flat. So there might be a rebound in the future, I think. But, you know, ultimately at the end of all of this (laughs) with book writing and with all of these different fields, we're still breaking in. And until the field is saturated it's always going to feel like we have to be the standard or the the bearers of this pressure to represent everybody because we were the ones who made it. And on some level that sounds cocky, but I think anyone who's walking through the door into a field or someone who's been there for 20 years still feels the same pressure because at the moment there just aren't enough. And until there are, and until there's good representation, and when I say good representation, I mean exactly what I was talking about earlier with the books, the layers, the nuance, being able to demonstrate the beauty and the pitfall, being able to own your story, whether that's positive or negative, and to have other people own that same story without putting words in your mouth. With writing, for example, a lot of the times, the stories that get accepted for publication about being Indian are arranged marriage stories. They are stories that paint India as the backward smelly place that people go on vacation and come back from thanking God that they're coming back to the U.S. And that's not the case for so many of us, but those are also not the stories that are being accepted. So it's really about pushing against the gatekeeping there to make sure that those stories get told too, that it's not always like that. Maybe it is like that. Maybe it's not. Whatever it is, it's all okay and all of those stories should be told regardless. So just being that standard bearer just has so much pressure, I think. And I think you bring such a good point by even bringing that up because it's a very isolating place to be if you don't talk about it too. And it's a lot of pressure to put on people. And one thing that I do want to add, and this isn't even coming from my own creation process or me putting myself out there, but something that I've wanted to tell people when I hear friends like you talk about this or past guests of the show is... If someone is bringing representation to your group, recognize that pressure that you just talked about and don't make it worse. Because I think we see that representation and then we we might hold it under a magnifying glass because there's so few other pieces of representation out there. And then people will start to attack that person who had good intention. They weren't trying to make a stereotype. Like, for example, going back to the, the Sikhism example that you brought up. Someone may have recognized that and it's very different when they make a thread and it's a correction or like a, hey, here's a note versus an attack, right? Like this show's not woke. It's called the woke they see. And like if it goes down that line, it's just then it becomes personal. Then it becomes not helpful to the community because it discourages people from creating. And I think as a creative, we feel that pressure, but we continue to create anyway. We try to be as aware as we can. But as a consumer, you can also 
recognize that the person on the other end is only human and try to be contributive instead of destructive in that whole process. But with that, Anika, I know that we're coming up on time. So one question that I want to end with is because there are so few South Asian writers and I think it's still a very much a growing space in terms of both writing and podcasting. And because you've kind of built this more public facing alter ego, if you will, (laughs) with Anika Sharma, I'd like to ask you, when you think about the Anika or the Bindu legacy, what does that look like? What is it that you want to leave behind? I want to leave behind the feeling that when people talk to me or interact with my books or hear their stories being told on my podcast, that they never walk away feeling like they're alone. That every interaction with me makes people feel like they have a place in the, in the world and that they are accepted for it. Annika, where can people find you or follow your work? You can follow me on Instagram at Anika Sharma. You can visit my website at anikasharma.com. Or you can also follow me at Twitter and on Facebook. I think that's basically it. But you can follow me on all of those places, all under my name. And I do my best to respond to DMs. And I will probably follow you back because I do like having connections with people, as I've mentioned 27 times in this podcast episode. So please do follow me and say hello. And if you are interested in my book, the links are on my website. The links are also on my bio on Instagram and on all my social media links, actually. And um, it's available for pre-order, which is a very big deal for authors as if you look on my Instagram today, actually you'll find out why, but they help authors a lot. My book comes out on September 21st. And I will put the pre-order link in the show notes as well. I have already pre-ordered the book and I'm stoked because I think originally it was going to come out in October and now it's coming out much sooner. So excited for that. It is. Those two weeks are very On one hand, I was like, oh, this is awesome. It's coming out early. On the other hand, I was like, you just took two weeks off my promo time for this thing, and I already wasn't doing enough. So now you've just condensed this, and I have to run for it. So I was like, listen, I these waves of stress cannot become a tsunami right now. This is not okay with me. But, you know, it's it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We're good. (laughs) Don't worry. It's just the first of three. Great, great, yeah, yeah. And as I write the second, and the second one is due, it's like you're in this weird space of confidence where, like, I'm in the face with the second book where I'm like, oh my God, everything I write sucks. And then you're also trying to release a book and talk it up. And you're like, you have to be like, yeah, I'm very confident in the journey that I've taken with this this first book. And meanwhile, you're like in tears as soon as you get off camera with the second one. So this is just a weird, complete and total like mind game at this point, I think. Well, listen, I like I said, I'm super stoked for the release. Good luck. I hope that you get lots of pre-orders and I'm looking forward to celebrating with love, chai and other four letter words in in the near future. (laughs) I can't wait to meet you in New York so I can treat you to a cup of chai and we can have an actual conversation involving lots of four letter words, I'm sure. (laughs) Thanks, Annika. Thank you. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guests. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.